Fantastic. Once you've taken a seat, if you're near the end of a row, if you might grab the Bibles, pass them along, uh, so everyone can get a look at page 1186. Page 1186. It's lovely to see you all. If you're new, uh, hello, my name's Jago. Uh, I'm on the staff team here, and I'm speaking tonight. And we're starting a new uh, sermon series tonight, going through to Easter, uh, looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've called it Hope and Holiness in a Hostile World. And uh, so turn to page 1186. And uh, I'm not going to read it now. I'm going to read it in a few moments, but it'd be great to have it there and open. Page 1186. Let me pray, and uh, then we'll begin. Spirit of God, would you take this word of God and would you use it tonight, we pray? Would you use it in our lives that you might comfort those of us who are disturbed and that you might disturb those of us who are comfortable? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's good to get a laugh even with my prayer. It's wonderful. (laughs) Great. We're on a good start. So, um, Paul's first letter... Uh, to the Thessalonians. Um, We are going to, as I say, looking at this um, through to Easter, so next six weeks or so. Uh, Did you know it is the very first book of the New Testament that was written? Uh, Of all the books in the New Testament, this is the first one that was written. It was written around 50 AD, so less than 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, you'll see it there. You've got it open. It is five chapters. It is just three pages of the whole of the Bible, but in it, there is so much. It is an absolute goldmine. And really, the background to this letter of 1 Thessalonians is in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and in Acts chapter 17, if you were to read there, you read about the Apostle Paul and Silas, and they head to Thessalonica, which is in northern Greece, and they spend less than a month in this city. And as they go to this city, they're there, and they are preaching the gospel, they're preaching the good news about Jesus, and wonderfully, people become Christians. People become Christians, and so they plant this little fledgling church in Thessalonica. But as we know, following Jesus means a countercultural way of living. And when we're living a countercultural kind of way of living, when we're living holy lives, often that leads to hostility. And that is what happened in Thessalonica. Very quickly, all the people in Thessalonica, as they heard about these people who were becoming Christians, they started leveling accusations at them. And we can read, actually, in Acts 17, what they were accusing these new Christians of. It's going to come up on the screen, Acts 17, verse 6. This is what they said about the new Christians. They said, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Isn't that an amazing accusation to be leveled against you? That you are worshipping a new king. You're worshipping this King Jesus. That suddenly he is the Lord of your life, not Caesar or anyone else. You're worshipping another king, one called Jesus. And as a result of this uproar, as a result of this hostility, basically in less than a month, these new Christians, they said to Paul, they said to Silas, look guys, you go. You go, we don't want you getting killed. You go, we're okay, we survived, you told us about Jesus, we have his spirit, we can survive, you go. And so off Paul and Silas go, and they head off in the night, and they head off to continue to other places and to plant other churches as they preached about Jesus. 
Now just imagine for a moment that you were Paul or Silas, you'd left Thessalonica, and in the weeks, the months following it, you were thinking, well, what's happening? How are these, these Christians, these new baby Christians, how are they doing? Have they just jacked it all in? Have they given up? Is all the hostility, is all the unrest, unrest just meant that they've given up, said it's too difficult being a Christian? Or are they standing firm? Are they keeping going as a Christian? And so after a few months, uh, Paul sends his young protege, Timothy, and he says, Timothy, go to Thessalonica, would you? I'll stay where I am. You go off. You go and find out what's happening. Go and find out what's happening. So Timothy, he goes to Thessalonica. He, he meets all these people, and then he comes back, and he reports to Paul what has been going on. He tells them the news. Is it good news, or is it bad news? Well, what do you reckon? Just if you've got your Bible open, just go across to chapter 3 and verse 6, and we can find out what happened. Chapter 3, verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news. It's good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Just note what he says there in verse 9. He says, how can we thank God enough for you? How can we thank God enough? You see, when Paul was uh, writing this letter, he was full of thanks. But it's not a, if you like, it's not a thank you letter, but it's a thanks for you letter. It is a thanks for you, thanks to God for you, you Thessalonian Christians who are so young in the faith, and yet you are displaying hope, you're displaying holiness in a hostile world. And if you look at chapter 1, which we're going to be looking at tonight, if you look at chapter 1, actually in the Greek, it is one long sentence. The whole chapter is just one sentence. Paul liked to write long sentences, and this is a premier example of one of his hugely long sentences. The whole chapter is just one sentence, but the main verb of the sentence comes in verse 2. If you look at verse 2, this is where the main verb of the sentence is. Everything else hangs on this. He says, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you. We thank God for all of you. This is a thanks for you letter. So I'm going to read chapter 1, and we're going to see what it says, and then how it applies to us. So let's read chapter 1. It says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. 
Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, since the start of the year, until this Sunday, we've been doing this uh, series on the gospel. If you've been here over the last uh, few months, we've been thinking about the gospel. And really, as we go through Thessalonians over the next few weeks, we are just continuing where we left off. We are thinking about the gospel. First of all, would you uh, think about, let's think about gospel reception. Gospel reception. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian, what does that mean? It means that you have received the gospel, that you've received the gospel, the good news about Jesus, you have received it positively, you've accepted it rather than rejecting it. Now, being a Christian, it begins with God, not with us. It flows out of God's love for us. So if you look at verse 4, look at verse 4, he says, brothers and sisters, loved by God, he has chosen you. So being a Christian, it begins with God's love for us, God's love for you and me. But there has to be, doesn't there, there has to be words explaining the gospel message of God's love. For the gospel, for it to be received by you or by me, there have to be words. It has to be spoken. Christianity, it can't sort of just be be caught like the flu. It has to be taught. And yet it's not just words. There also needs to be the power of the Holy Spirit enabling you or I to welcome the gospel message. Just look at the next verse, verse 5, and how it continues. Paul says, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. Or look down to verse 9, to the end of the chapter. Paul writes more about what happened when these Thessalonian Christians, when they received the gospel. Look at verse 9. He says, They tell how you turned to God... From idols to serve the living and true God. Now in Thessalonica, we heard that they turned, they turned from King Caesar and they turned to King Jesus. So for them, there was this change of direction. There was a transfer of allegiance facing one way and then they turned and they faced another way. Now you and I, we may not worship sort of funny idols in a temple, we may not worship King Caesar. But we all worship something. If I ask you the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? That helps us begin to work out if we have an idol in our life. What are you living for? Or perhaps a better question, what is the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing? I wonder how you'd answer it. A few years ago now, I was driving our eldest two children to um, school at the other side of Clapham Common. And uh, we were in the car, we're going down Wandsworth Road, and we passed Labrooks, the betting shop. And Daisy, who was seven at the time, Daisy uh, piped up, she said, Dad, what's Labrooks? And I said, it's it's a betting shop where where people gamble. And she went, like like Grandpa does on the horses. And I said, well, only occasionally, but you know. Uh, She said, is it wrong? Is it wrong? And I said, well... The problem is with gambling, it's, it's something that once you do it once, you want to do it more. It's a bit like smoking, I said. Once you smoke once, then you want to smoke more. It's an addiction. You get addicted to it. She said, she thought for a bit, she said, um, I'm addicted to, to my guinea pigs. 
Uh, and, and, I, and I said, well, you know, generally, when one talks about the word addicted, one uses it um, at about something bad. But then, you know, I'm a vicar. I like to sort of think of any teaching point I can make. So I was like, well, well actually, sometimes, sometimes there are good things. There are good things that, that we're addicted to, but we become so addicted to them that, that they're our top addiction and, and that we're more addicted to them than we are to God. And then that's a problem. And Daisy rather liked this idea. So she started, as we were driving the car to school, she started um, compiling her list of top ten addictions. Number one addiction, she said. Number one, God. She's a vicar's daughter. She knows the right answer. Uh, number two addiction, she said. Number two, pumpkin, which is her guinea pig. Um, her guinea pig since has, has met a slightly sticky end with a fox, but we won't go into details there. Um, she says it was my fault. She calls me a murderer. It's not true. Um, but number two addiction, she said, uh, pumpkin. Number three addiction, mummy. Number four addiction, Patch, uh, which was Boaz's guinea pig, who also has made a sticky end since um, the sort of ramp in the hutch, uh, Patch fell off and, and sort of went splat. So that, that was certainly not my fault. Um, number five, and so she went on, and I was getting more and more upset, uh, irate. Where, where am I going to feature? Eventually, number nine addiction was where I came in. I mean, I, I, I was so offended. But all the time, um, as we were going to school, Boaz, who was six at the time, Boaz just kept silent. Typical Boaz, he was sort of just sat there in the back of the car, just listening, taking it all in, just assessing the situation. And eventually Boaz thought, right, it's time for me to speak. And so Boaz entered the conversation, and Boaz just sat there from the back of the car, and he just went, I'm addicted to me. (laughs) Now, we're talking about gospel reception, receiving the gospel. And for all of us, every single one of us here, it is about recognizing what is our number one addiction. What is the thing for us that is the most important thing in our life? And if it's not God, it's about turning from that thing. Turning from that thing in the sense of no longer having it as our number one addiction. Whatever that thing might be, whether it's ourselves, whether it's a guinea pig, whatever it might be turning from that thing and turning to God, making the one living true God our number one addiction. And verse 10, waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So that's gospel reception. Gospel reception. Next, gospel revolution. Have a look, would you, at verse 3. Look at verse 3 and what verse 3 says. It says this. It says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at that verse, those verbs in that verse where it says produced, it says prompted, it says inspired, they are actually, they're inserted in the, in the Bible by the Bible translators to make it sound better in English. They're not actually there in the Greek. So in the Greek, it simply says, we remember before our God and Father your faith that works, your love that labors, your hope that endures in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's faith in the past, faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection, faith in the past. It's love in the present, it's love for God, love for other people. And it's hope in the future, hope for Jesus to rescue us from the coming wrath. And what it's saying is happening in verse 3, it's saying the gospel, it's being received... And then it is having a revolutionary effect on these people in Thessalonica. It's having a big outworking in their life. It is a faith that works. 
It's a love that labors. It's a hope that endures. And we can see it's having this revolutionary effect by the kind of words that are used later in the chapter. If you look at verse 6, it says they are imitators of the Lord. Look at verse 7, it says they are a model to all believers. These new baby Christians in Thessalonica, they are living changed lives. A revolution has occurred in them. A gospel revolution. So there's gospel reception, gospel revolution, and then thirdly, gospel radiation. Gospel radiation. These Thessalonians, they know that the gospel is not just for them, but it's for everyone. That it needs to be passed on. It needs to radiate out from them. If you look at verse 8, take a look at verse 8. Paul writes, The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. And last week, if you were here, I spoke a little bit. Uh, at the end of this, our series of sermons on the gospel, I spoke about us being human exclamation marks about us bubbling over, wanting to share the good news of Jesus with those around us. You see, the Lord's message, the Lord's message is to ring out, not only here in Clapham, but for your faith in God to become known wherever you are. For your faith in God to become known in your office in Green Park, or your school in Peckham, or your hospital in London Bridge, or your university in Roehampton, or your trading floor in Canary Wharf, or chatting to your neighbour in Balham. For your faith to become known everywhere. So we receive the gospel in. The gospel then has a revolutionary effect in us. And then the gospel radiates out from us to others. And here, I think, is the thing that I've been particularly struck by. As I've been looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it's this. It is that truth and experience, they must go together. Let me try and explain what I mean. Just look at verse 3 again. If you look at verse 3, there is objective truth in verse 3. So faith, hope, and love. But also in verse 3, there is lived experience of that truth, that truth, working, laboring, enduring. So truth and experience are going together. Or look down to verse 5, there is the objective truth of the gospel. There is propositional truths. The gospel is to be declared in words. But it's not just words. There's also power, the Holy Spirit, deep conviction. The gospel is to be experienced, truth and experience together. Or look down to verse 8, there is objective truth. Again, the Lord's message rang out. But Peter, Paul, uh, Paul continues, your faith in God has been known everywhere. People all around are being wowed by these transformed lives of these baby Christians. The lived experience. Or verse 9 and 10, again, again, there is objective truth about God, about Jesus. He is the living and true God. Jesus, he is the Son of God from heaven. He is the rescuer. This is the objective truth. Yet all the verbs in 9 and 10 are about living it out, experiencing the gospel, turning, serving, waiting. So I hope you can see all through this chapter, there is this sense that truth and experience, they go together. They go hand in hand. And they must be held together. And as I close in the final sort of eight or so minutes, I just want to show how vital that truth is, that truth and experience go together, how vital that is for us as a church, for HTC, and how vital it is for you as an individual, that truth and experience, that they go together. Let's think first about us as a church, about HTC. 
So the Thessalonian church, it was seen, verse 7, to be a model church. In other words, it seemed to be there a church that's having an influence far beyond its locality. And that is exactly what HTC is being called to do in Southwark Diocese as a resourcing church. We are being called, the bishop says, he wants us to have an influence beyond our parish across the whole of South London. Someone who's quite a prophetic individual, they had a, a picture, they felt God giving them a picture of HTC this week. HTC is a deep well that was about to erupt and to quench the thirsty all around. And we are meant to be having a big impact for Jesus all around. As God works in us and through us, quenching people's spiritual thirst. And you know, that will only happen if we hold objective truth and of subjective experience if we hold them together. What does that look like? Here are two things that I think it means. It means, number one, that word and spirit must stay together. In the Bible is truth. This is the truth. But without the work of the Spirit, what we read in here, it is just words and there will be no transformation experienced in our lives. What God has married together, word and spirit, we must not divorce the two of them. Think of the armor of God in Ephesians. In Ephesians, when it talks about the armor of God, it talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Without the Word, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is weaponless without the Word. But without the Spirit, the Word is powerless. And while Susanna and I are here at HTC, and we're intending to be here for a while, we will be a church that holds Word and Spirit together. Now similarly, because truth and experience, because they must be held together, so too evangelism and social action, they must be held together. Evangelism and social action, they are separate things. They're separate things, but they cannot be separated. For all our evangelism as a church, it must have a social dimension to it. And all our social action, it must have an evangelistic dimension to it. If you just look across, just look across to chapter 2. There's a great example of how this works out. Chapter 2, verse 8, and Paul says this. He says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We want to share the gospel, we want to evangelize, but we don't want to do it in a vacuum. We want to share our lives as well, social action, evangelism and social action together. Or think of our vision statement as a church. We long as a church, we long to see every life bearing fruit for Jesus. Now, bearing fruit, that is experiential, isn't it? Bearing fruit, it's us living things out. But it's bearing fruit for Jesus, and that is the truth. It is objectively for Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And how is that vision that we have to see every life bearing fruit for Jesus, how is that going to become a greater and greater reality? It's going to come, we say, through trusting Jesus, transforming lives, and growing the church. You might say, through gospel reception, trusting Jesus. Through gospel revolution, transforming lives. And through gospel radiation, growing the church. Truth. And experience, as a church, they must be held together. And then finally, let's just focus it now on ourselves as individuals. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me for truth and experience to be held together? Well, I'm about to show you 
one of my most impressive drawings ever. I hope you're going to like this, okay? This is, I've really worked hard at this. Here is a very impressive drawing from me. Thank you. There we go. Um, now, um, what I want to say here is that is how we should all be, okay? With a head, uh, a body, and a limbs all sort of nice and podgy, all equally sized. That's how we should be. But here I think is the reality. Some of us here, we have shrunken heads. Some of us have shrunken heads, okay? So some of us here, we have experienced Jesus in our hearts. That there has been transformation in our lives. Maybe there was some moment in the past that we had a key spiritual experience at some point in time. But if we're honest, there isn't much substance to our faith. We're not too bothered about understanding the gospel. Is the gospel true? Thinking out answers to the questions of faith. You know, we say, leave the facts about Christianity to someone else. Leave the doctrine. Leave that to someone else. We don't use our heads. But the trouble is, with a shriveled head, when in the future we don't feel like God is really present with us, when someone who's really close to us challenges us on our beliefs, says, why bother being a Christian? Then we've got little foundation to stand on. And we begin to think that our experience, our hard experience of Jesus was just some sort of psychological manipulation and maybe we've just made a ghastly mistake following this so-called King Jesus because it doesn't feel so good suddenly to follow him. Then others of us here, we have shrunken bodies. And if you like, shrunken hearts. So our heads are big, our heads are fine. We thought it through rationally. We've read the books. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. Well, good for you. Even the devil believes that. The problem is that you can't do Christianity like you do algebra or you do the facts about the Battle of Hastings. Christian faith is belief in a creed, in truths. It is that, but it's not just that. Because it's also trust in a person. It is a relationship and sometimes, you may have heard people talk like this, sometimes people say uh, their faith is needing to move from their head to their heart. And you know that is what is needed for you because currently your heart is shriveled. Truth, your head, needs to be combined with experience, your heart. You need to experience the emotions, the delight of a relationship with the one who's made you. You need to experience the transforming power of the one who lives in you. So some of us, we've got shrunken heads, some of us, shrunken hearts. And then some of us, we've got shrunken arms and legs. So yes, we believe in our heads. Thank you, I'm glad you enjoy my pictures. Yeah, good. Uh, that, um, that, yes, we've got, we've got belief in our heads. There is content to the gospel, there is truth. Yes, we've experienced the joy of relationship with God, the Spirit at work in our lives, but if we're honest, is it actually making a noticeable difference in our lives day to day? Are we living truly transformed lives? Are we a model to others? Is the Lord's message ringing out from us? Is our faith actually working, our love actually laboring, our hope actually enduring? Or are our arms, are our legs, are our mouths, are they redundant, they're shriveled? For some of us here, maybe quite a few of us, we will know that there has for you, if you like, there has been lopsided growth for you as a Christian. Either your head or your heart or your will, your actions, one of them is shriveled and it needs to grow. 
And tonight would be a great night to pray with someone about that. You see, the good news about Jesus Christ is Jesus is for all of your life, and he is for all of you. The gospel, it is not just a series of intellectual propositions or just a source of emotional highs or just a sequence of mandated tasks. No, the gospel, it speaks to your mind and to your heart and to your will. Truth and experience, they must be held together. But there will also be some of us here tonight And actually, you just feel just like those Thessalonian Christians. Life's tough. Maybe you're suffering. Verse 6, just like the Thessalonians, you've welcomed the gospel message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You know only too well that this is a hostile world, and yet you are clinging on to that future hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But it is tough. And today, if that is you, I want to urge you to hear the comfort and to hear the reassurance of these verses that the Thessalonians, that they needed to hear too. I want to urge you to hear and be reminded of what it says in verse 4. In verse 4 it says that you are loved by God. It says that you are chosen by God. God. You're loved and chosen by him even when life is feeling tough. Verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Shall we stand? Let's pray. Just as we stand, I wonder if we can just take a moment, maybe close our eyes, and ask the Holy Spirit to continue to work in us. You know, the Holy Spirit doesn't just sort of suddenly come on the scene now because it's prayer ministry. The Holy Spirit has been at work with the Word as I've been preaching. And as I've been preaching from God's Word, For some of us, maybe for many of us, that word has come tonight to us with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. And if God's been speaking to you, in a moment tonight, I'd love you to to be prayed for by someone, to come forward and be prayed for. Let's just be quiet for a moment and just ask God to continue to work in us by his Spirit. For some of us, we'll be recognizing that one of those parts of us is shriveled and needs to grow. Whether it's our head, or our heart, or our will, our actions. Some of us here tonight will be suffering. Life will be tough like it was for the Thessalonians at the moment. And you're needing to experience afresh that you're loved by God and that you're chosen by him. And I wonder too, 
particularly had just had this on my heart the last few hours, that for some of us, we've been challenged tonight that, yeah, we do have an idol, an idol that is our number one addiction rather than the one true living God. Now, the wind's been blowing really, really strong today. And that sense of we're just being blown with the wind away from God. And actually, for some of us, we are needing to turn from just being blown with the culture, blown following that idol that we are following, that is our number one addiction. And we need to turn to serve the one true living God. That's going to mean turning and being countercultural, going against the, the wind of culture. And that's a challenge. But we have the wind of the Spirit living in us and empowering us. For some of us, we will be saying, yeah, if I'm honest, there is something that is what I'm living for more than Jesus Christ. And that's something, it could be something that is in, in itself a bad thing, drug addiction. But it could just as likely, more likely, that thing be something that's good in itself, but is not so good when it takes number one spot. When that is what we're living for more than Jesus. When that is our number one addiction. Whether that is a particular person who we're living for. Whether that's our, our family who we're living for. In the prayer meeting before uh, the service, one person had a particular feeling that for some, uh, that idol might be a, a sports team. That actually for you, maybe one person here, actually uh, there's a sports team that your money, your time, your devotion, your dedication is to that more than Jesus. So I want to encourage you tonight, if any of those things are resonating with you, I'd love you to come forward now um, for prayer. Just come forward right now out of your pews and just come to the front if you would like prayer for those things.